This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. During the pandemic, we've been spending a lot of time on our cell phones and mobile devices. We've come to rely on them for everything from work to school to health apps. But the cost is just too expensive for some. Call it the digital divide. Some Canadians are a lot more privileged and have the opportunity to be able to connect to the internet. But you have stories, you know, of students still sitting in parking lots trying to connect to a Tim Hortons Wi-Fi network. Yet the topic hasn't been brought up much on the campaign trail. Back in 2019, Justin Trudeau pledged to bring down cell phone rates by 25% on certain mid-level plans and did. But most Canadians rely on more expensive, higher data plans, which is why your cell phone bill may not be much lower. This podcast drops on Election Day in Canada following a late summer campaign in which the focus was largely on anything but digital issues. COVID, climate change, Afghanistan, and affordability all dominated the daily talking points. The digital policy issues that grabbed attention throughout the spring, Bill C-10, online harms, wireless pricing, were largely absent from the discussion, and in some cases, even from party platforms. Here to help sort through where the parties stand on the issues and what it means for the future of Canadian digital policy is Laura Tribe, Executive Director of Open Media. Our conversation walks through a wide range of issues, including the surprising omission of wireless pricing from the Liberal platform, the future of Bill C-10, and the failure of privacy reform to garner much political traction. Laura, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, it's great to have you back. You know, when we did this podcast nearly two years ago during the 2019 election campaign, we started with what was the lead digital communications policy issue of the day, wireless and internet affordability and competition. It was an issue that attracted a lot of attention in the political parties, made a lot of noise about focusing on that issue. Um, While they staked out positions at that point in time, this election, not so much, at least not with all the parties. Uh, Can you tell us a bit where the parties are when it comes to internet and wireless affordability? Yeah, it's definitely a shift from 2019, for sure. Uh, Across the board, I would say it's getting a lot less attention. Uh, You know, despite the fact that it is in some of the policies, there's a lot less media coverage, a lot less... uh, press releases and and kind of big public speaking events around it. Uh, I think, you know, the the biggest elephant in the room is that the liberals are completely absent on it. And I think that's probably a big factor on it is that the government's actions and promises do set a lot of the agenda in an election. Um, So I think, you know, that's a, we'll come back to that one, but I think that's a a big reason for it. Um, You know, the NDP has actually really stepped up their platform this year compared to 2019 um, to make their promises a little bit more concrete. So they're still promising to bring down cell phone rates for customers, but they've also, you know, similar to the Conservatives promised universal connectivity at the CRTC's 5010 targets by 2025. Uh, So that's actually, you know, added rural and remote connectivity into their platform a bit more concretely. Uh, And then very specifically on policy, you know, they're the only ones have really tackled what they will do with the CRTC's recent decisions this year that are now both being appealed before cabinet on both wireless uh, access for MVNOs and also the wholesale rates for wireline internet. And so I think, 
you know, the, the parties have given it some thought. They know it's an important issue. Uh, when you look at the conservatives on the flip side, they tried to make a big deal about their promises, uh, you know, promising they're going to let in international providers and forget this ban on foreign companies coming into our telecom market, you know, welcome in U.S. companies or whoever else to try and compete with big telecom. Uh, but I think that's a it's a pretty vague promise and it doesn't really get at the core issues. And so I think, you know, it sounds good, but I think when you look at the depth of the policy, it's an improvement over 2019. The conservatives actually didn't have anything in their platform in 2019 about affordability. So it does show they're aware of it, but again, it's not anything really concrete or substantial. Uh, and then again, I think, you know, when you look at the liberals, that's the biggest gap, you know, they, they walked away from it. They, hung their hat on it from 2019, promising cell phone prices coming down 25% in two years or else we're bringing in MVNOs. They promised all kinds of things around rural and remote connectivity. And when you read their platform right now, it, it kind of reads like a mission accomplished when it comes to universal broadband. They talk about the fact they gave it money. They don't increase their targets of 2030 as the other two parties have. They don't even talk about what's needed to get from here to there. And so I think that's where, you know, they have a tiny little clause around use it or lose it for spectrum, which the conservatives also have, but it really fails to get at the fact that what I think underpins all of this, and it's what's so surprising is that that's how we got through the past two years. The internet is the reason that so many of us still have jobs and still were able to go to school in whatever form. And it was such a huge talking point, particularly in the first six to nine months of the pandemic hitting that kind of walking away from it and pretending that the job is done, I think really overlooks these huge gaps that still exist. You know, we've seen actually reduction in the number of cell phone plans people have in Canada over the past year. Uh, people have had to cut their plans. We've seen people unable to get access to work from home, still having to go into the office. And yet we're seeing this huge shift to hybrid workplaces or entirely work from home offices for the foreseeable future. And a lot of talk about making this permanent that really questions why the future of our economy, the future of our technology infrastructure is not more present. Uh, and I think, you know, it's been understandable that it's a short and fast election and people are trying to find their 10 second talking point they can pitch. But, you know, this is one they've actually all actually agreed on at different points of time over the past two years that it's a critical issue. And it, it's surprising to see that they're not really willing to go out on a limb and promise something that is both very needed, but also, you know, quite uncontroversial in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, I, it, it's, it's, I think I agree with you. It's, it's, it's a surprise and it's, that's, it's the sort of thing that doesn't seem like there'd be a lot of downside between getting behind more competition and more affordable internet and wireless services. Do you have thoughts on, on why they've moved on, why they've, you know, you mentioned that it, it, it's not, it, it, it isn't necessarily accurate to say if, to the extent to which they are, that it's mission accomplished, that there remain significant concerns here. You know, why do you think they've moved on? And, you know, we're recording this uh, just a few days before people go to vote. Um, they're in the, they're ahead in the polls or most of the polls right now, which suggests that there's a decent shot that they're coming back. What do you, what do you think it means for the issue? Should they be reelected? I mean, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a professional political strategist. I don't have access to their polling data, but you know, if I were to imagine when the liberals went through and built that platform, I think they put in everything they'd done and everything they promised and they deleted anything that they could be called out on. And when you look at wireless affordability in particular, they've been heavily criticized on it. They came out strong saying we're going to reduce all cell phone plans by 25%. 
their actual plan to do that measured such a small subset of the plans. It didn't even measure anything on Bell, Telus, or Rogers flagship brands. It only measured the flankers and it only measured certain plans within that. And even then, when you look at the updates quarter to quarter, most of those plans aren't even available anymore. And so, you know, they weren't even committing to doing anything. They were just committing to tracking things for two years and they didn't even track anything well. And when you look at two years in, the landscape politically, when it comes to the policy decisions that have happened, they've been slammed. The CRTC has absolutely turned its back on Canadians when it comes to public interest decision-making. They have all been decisions that sided with big telecom when it comes to affordability. There is absolutely nothing in the past year that they can take credit for. And so I think when the Liberals look at it as an issue, putting it on the table basically gives, makes them a bit of a punching bag, I think, for the opposition parties. And, you know, fair enough, I think it's an election and you have to be strategic around what you want to talk to. But I also think, you know, that raises a lot of questions in the confidence people have for them to follow through. Because if you're not promising people something in an election when they will promise the world, what chance do we possibly have for that being an agenda item for them in their mandate letters for ministers or when they form government afterwards? Like if they're not talking about it now, there's nothing that guarantees they're going to talk about it afterwards. And I think, you know, really specifically looking at some of the biggest issues they're facing just on just on telecom and affordability and you know there's way more on internet policy across the board we have what are they going to do about the cell phone prices and the mvno decision and there's you know an appeal to cabinet deadline for comments next week on that because that's being appealed we have the wholesale rates that the crtc reversed its own decision on basically throwing all of its own math out uh, that they, again, next week have another appeal to cabinet due for comments that they're going to have to look at and face. And beyond all of those, you know, we're looking at the Roger Shaw merger, which is one of the biggest threats to affordability we've seen in the telecom market. And no one wants to touch it because those are two really big companies with really big reach, a lot of media assets, and not something that I think they really want to wade into in the middle of an election when they need votes. And I think it's I think it's a little foolish. I think that, you know, I, I might be a bit biased from my standpoint, but it's pretty clear that there's not nearly as many people who are willing to stand up in support of, you know, big telecom as they are for cell phone prices. It's pretty uncontroversial that something needs to happen and that prices going up is bad. Uh, but I think there's no wins for them to be had. They've, they've dropped the ball. And when they're looking at what they could get out of it, they need to actually show proof. They've been in power for six years and they either need to demonstrate what they've done or they're going to be called out on it. And so I think that's where, you know, it's really unfortunate to see, but I think they've just kind of decided, well, maybe there's nothing in this for us. We're out, uh, which is pretty discouraging. I think when you look at the years ahead, should they be reelected? Yeah, that's an interesting take that, uh, that they just kind of wanted to, to sideline it given that they didn't think it would necessarily be a good news story for them. Uh, do you think that carries on, though, if if reelected? Does it, you know, if they are reelected, does it reemerge as an issue? Or do you expect that they're going to adhere more to the platform? It wasn't a core part of the platform. And so uh, wireless affordability may continue to be a major concern, but not a major amongst the public, but not a major priority for the government. I, I don't think I'd be doing my job if I didn't say it would reemerge because that is my job to make it reemerge. But 
you know, I think it's not an issue that's going away. It was not something that the Harper government necessarily hung its hat on. And yet that was a huge issue during its time as well. So I think whether they want to face it or not, the public's going to care. But I think, you know, more importantly, they are they are forced to deal with these cabinet decisions before them. They're going to have to answer whether or not they're going to do anything about the CRTC decisions. They're going to have to weigh in on the Roger Shaw merger. So there are major inflection points coming up. They're going to have to face regardless. Uh, so I think, you know, it's not going away. Uh, I think the question is, do they have a clear plan for what they want to do with it? Or are they going to have to kind of face it as it comes? And it's coming. There's, there's no world where cell phone prices in Canada stop being a talking point for customers and voters. I think the question is really, are they willing to do something about it or are people going to get frustrated? Um, and I think that frustration on both promises and failed promises, uh, or in some cases, actually bad decision-making, uh, like we saw in the wholesale rates, does have repercussions for them. People are really frustrated and they will push back and it it has ripple effects in the trust in government to follow through on its promises writ large, not just on a specific issue. Okay, so so it's it's not going away, and I think we're certainly in agreement on that. Another thing that doesn't seem to be going away, of course, is internet regulation, uh, which strikes me as one of the one of the issues that was an issue, at least in the platforms. Can you can you talk a bit about the internet regulation side, which in the last number of years, certainly since actually the 2019 election, I guess, has become more of an issue with uh, really all the parties, but certainly the, the Liberal government becoming much more aggressive when it comes to its vision of, of regulating what takes place online. Where do the parties stand on some of those internet regulation related issues? And is there very much to separate between the various parties? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about internet regulation, it, it's really snowballed from what that understanding or topic looked like even in 2019, let alone, you know, going back to the 2015 election where we were talking about, will there be a Netflix tax? And, you know, in 2019, it was, well, maybe, but also, you know, big tech. And now when we're talking about it, particularly over the last year and the liberals agenda, it's been pretty clear it's all content everywhere on the internet. Um, and really trying to build an internet and uh, the content on the internet to reflect a specific version of what is Canadian. And I think, you know, that's grown fast and furious uh, since the last election. And, and that's really, I think, where the Liberals have decided to stake their claim. Um, so when you look at the other parties and, and not just in their platforms, but like those were very contentious issues in the spring, kind of as the House of Commons wound down. Every party was forced to take a really strong stance when it came to Bill C-10 around what does it look like to regulate the internet? Who do we think needs to be paying for content creation? Is that also the same as regulating the types of content they can have? They all think it's important. And they all think that, you know, when it comes to some of the basics around the Broadcasting Act and C-10, that yes, big tech should be paying into fund CanCon. Even the conservatives who made such a huge deal about trying to oppose C-10 based on the free expression talking points don't really have an opposition to funding CanCon through big tech. Uh, they were actually quite supportive of C-10 when it was first introduced. And I think, again, that became quite political with the potential for an election on the horizon. But the liberals are really the ones who have got this vision they're trying to implement. And I think when you look at the other parties' platforms, what they've said since uh, is really not wanting to go, get left behind. They just don't want to say we don't have a plan and they don't want to say, you know, we don't think this matters because I think 
they're just worried they'll be left out. But this is really a liberal party agenda for how to regulate the internet, how to regulate content and kind of what that vision of Canadian content should be. Um, and so I think the biggest differentiation really actually comes between the liberals and the conservatives around where those free speech, free expression limitations are drawn. Uh, but, you know, in terms of should we be regulating big tech, I think actually there's a bit more consensus than the parties would like you to think. Uh, and I think that, you know, for someone like yourself who followed Bill C-10 as closely as you did, that was that was pretty clear up front. Um, but it's, I think the the biggest similarity between all of the parties when it comes to talking about these issues, and I've had conversations with MPs and staffers on each of the parties, you know, I've, I've watched all of their testimony and kind of voting and commentary at, at committees and in the House, they are really focused on specific parts of the internet or specific issues they're trying to fix. And I don't think any of them have really thought through the ripple effects of what full-scale internet regulation is going to mean for the internet in Canada, our economy, uh, or any of our rights. I think that, you know, no matter what vantage point they're coming from, they're very short-sighted, uh, for even from different vantage points. And I think that's where, you know, this is a complicated issue and the clarity in the liberal platform comes from their vision they really want. I think the lack of clarity in the or what I would say is a lack of clarity in the conservative and NDP platforms are a bit more the result of wanting to talk about it, but not having a really clear understanding. Uh, but I'm, I'm really concerned at the willingness to jump in without a deep comprehension, particularly in the past uh, kind of government of uh, Canadian heritage in particular, who was leading the fight, you know, what the actual implications are. Uh, so I think that's where you know, I have, I have a lot of red flags on maybe what's to come in the, in the coming months, but, you know, the liberals have put this as a part of their hundred day agenda. So it's, it's definitely a top issue. Right. And they have talked about bringing back C10 within the first hundred days. Does, so does that suggest on a number of issues on say bill C10 on the internet broadcasting regulation bill on online harms on news payments from social media ironically both of those latter two issues online harms and news payments the subject of consultations during the writ periods as if there's an interest in hearing what canadians have to say but does that does that leave us with sort of a sense of inevitability that you know the, the map is there the Liberals are re-elected. They've provided a sense of what that mapping is. If they're not, if the if we end up with a conservative government it, or even a liberal minority, it still sounds, based on the way you've described it, that that we have a general that the general direction in which we're heading is is fairly clear. It's kind of just you know what's the path that we get to get take to get there without necessarily you know engaging in that kind of deeper analysis that that you suggest is so necessary when it comes to internet regulation. Yeah, I mean, the, the Liberals have put online harms, uh, broadcast act updates, or the return of Bill C-10, and, you know, funding for the news, all three of them in their 100-day mandate. Um, that's a lot to do, uh, given that they have had six years and haven't been able to do that. But I guess also maybe they feel really ready to jump in since they've had six years to try and prep for it. But, you know, as you mentioned, they're running two of those consultations during an election, which, you know, open media has openly questioned and, and thinks is inappropriate, but it's it's impossible for 
Canadians to engage in those types of consultations at the same time of not even knowing who the government is going to be when the consultation itself is pushing a very specific partisan agenda. And, you know, that's really implying that the Liberals are ready to hit the ground running. Uh, I think those consultations should not be held. I think that it's wildly inappropriate to be holding something that is tied to one government's mandate uh, to move it forward over an election. But, you know, I we've asked for an extension or a delay or a pause, and I'm not sure we're going to get it. But, you know, regardless of that, I think we're going to see a lot less pickup on participating in those consultations because it is happening during the start of a fourth wave with the return to back to school during a snap election. And people can only do so much at once, no matter how much they care. And so I think, you know, from the liberal perspective, it's a way to make sure the ball's rolling and they're going to pick it up fast and furious. I think should we see a conservative government, for example, they'll want to do their own consultation because that government is very different in how they would want to tackle these issues, even if they still think the issues are to be done, that it would it would slow it down. Um, but I think, you know, there's the three pieces on the table when we're looking at online harms, Bill C-10 or broadcasting act reforms and news, the parties all have some agenda on them, but the urgency is coming from the liberals. Uh, and I think that's where that will differentiate how quickly we jump back into those issues in the fall um, and exactly how, uh, how deep we go into them, I think, because I think the liberals have the most ambitious plan in terms of exactly how to tackle and this and what they wanna tackle. Uh, but I think the conservatives, for example, you know, they, they do think, and I think there's a lot of agreement that the Broadcasting Act itself needs updating. Like, you know, I have huge oppositions to Bill C-10, but I'm not here to say, leave it as is. It's that it needs to be done differently. And so kind of taking a step back is, is one approach. Jumping forward without caring what people think is maybe the liberals approach. <laughs> um, but they're going to move forward on all of them regardless. I think, you know, there's a lot of pressure to save the news. And I think that all the parties are struggling to figure out exactly what to do. But, you know, it's not really controversial to say that media is important. Full stop. It's how the parties get their get your attention during an election cycle, right? Uh, and, you know, online harms is, I think, maybe where we'll see the greatest differentiation between the parties, again, particularly between the liberals and the conservatives, uh, because of those free expression concerns the conservatives have really picked up on in just how far the liberals want to take this. I think what is less clear is what the conservatives will do around online harms. Um, and I think that's the one that is more likely to fall off should a conservative government come into play, at least from my perspective, uh, because it is very unclear to me what they think online harms are or how they would handle them. Um, and, you know, we've seen conservative MPs, uh, female conservative MPs harassed online, the same as we have for liberal MPs. It's obviously something that they're aware of, but I think the depth of the issues of racism, of harassment um, are really a lot more intrinsic to the liberal platform of wanting to tackle it. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not sure how that one will surface uh, should we see, say, a conservative majority government next week. Okay, it's just really interesting analysis, I have to say. Um, just one quick little tangential question, and then I, I want to touch on a couple of other topics. You know, before the election, you sort of 
almost every other word it seemed like or every other sentence i suppose from the heritage minister and some others was web giants you know we're going to make the web giants pay the web giants <laughs> this web giants that it, it feels like that that talking point has has, has kind of disappeared um you know other than sort of a, a single culture debate um which featured uh, five white uh, middle-aged males talking about culture and diversity um, in which they couldn't even talk about Canadian culture without referencing Quebec culture and Canadian culture. Other than that, web giants didn't figure all that prominently in the policies as we've talked about are there, but that kind of framing uh, was didn't really break through. You, you have any thoughts on, on why that is? Is the government overestimate the interest in battling big tech or are they just, uh, is that kind of laying in wait, do you think, for, and, and will return once the government returns and starts moving forward on the policies? I think so much of, you know, five or, or seven white guys getting together and debating cultural policy and diversity in Canada, I think is representative of Bill C-10 and the way that this issue has been tackled to date, particularly around what is of interest to Quebec. And I think that's a big part of why we haven't heard it as much on the campaign trail is that the specific tactics that the liberals in particular, but all parties were using was really, that entire debate was about Quebec. That entire debate was how can we all posture and position ourselves to make ourselves look like we care the most about Quebec and Quebec culture. And that debate plays out in French during an election cycle in Quebec. It doesn't play out on a national policy stage in the same way that it has to when legislation is actually being tabled. Um, and I think that's a big part of why. I think, you know, we've still seen uh, Stephen Gilbo, at least at the beginning of the election, talking about web giants on Twitter, trying to continue those talking points. But I think at the end of the day, it kind of gets down to well, what's going to work in each riding and, you know, what do we need in each region? And they're getting a bit more specific and, and, tactical based on polling data. But I think when you look at all of the internet regulation issues around <laughs> whether it's, you know, access and affordability, if you're looking at reigning in big tech, if you're looking at support for cultural content creators, if you're looking at the news, if you're looking at privacy, copyright, all of these issues, you know, the one group that the government really saw as its stakeholders was the Quebec cultural industry. And a lot of those other issues have generic stakeholders. It's like, well, Canadians or rural Canada, but there were actual really clear stakeholders with very explicit like lobbyists and organizations representing them that could knock on their door that I think guarantee that they can actually see who cares about that issue enough to make sure it returns. And it's frustrating because that's, you know, more what lobbying looks like and on the Hill, as opposed to what issues resonate with the most people in Canada. But I, I don't think it's going anywhere. You know, I think they're, they're coming right back after the election. I think that web giants and big tech are a talking point of a particular stakeholder group. I think their platform very explicitly says what they're going to do. And those stakeholders are confident that it's in the hundred day agenda. So now they need to go convince other voters to show up, but it's, it's a big part of that platform. That PDF has a lot of pages about what they're going to do on, you know, regulating big tech, how they're going to update the Broadcasting Act, all of their promises to the cultural sector. Um, it, it has the most detail of just about anything in there. And so I think a big reason they don't, and you know, who knows, I, I have no insight into this. This is strictly my speculation, but, you know, I, I think that 
they've given that confidence that that's a clear priority. And, and now they have a you know six week election cycle to try and convince everyone else of everything else. But I don't think that the web giants argument held up nationally in the same way that they thought it would or hoped it would. Um, you know, from the accountability that they wanted to demand from big tech and that they kept saying, you know, in, in very different iterations, you know, well, these, these web giants are, you know, unaccountable or, you know, we need to make sure they're paying their fair share and all of those talking points. What that looks like to the average Canadian, whoever the average Canadian might be, looks very different uh, than I think it does from someone who has a really vested interest in that cultural content. And I think that was what caused so much of the backlash with Bill C-10. The web giants, sure, you could, it sounds nice to say, well, yeah, maybe they need to pay more taxes or sure, they should also fund good content, but people love YouTube and they watch YouTube a lot. And the idea that all of a sudden all of that content is going to be regulated by the government goes, wait a minute, that's what accountability looks like? I don't, I don't know about that. And I think their vision didn't sell as well as they might've hoped it did because, I mean, I think they'd reached too far, uh, but I also think, you know, they haven't really tackled the pieces of accountability that they see uh, in the same way that the public sees them. There's nothing around what happens to my data and, you know, my privacy and all of that content online. They haven't really tackled what happens with even kind of the misinformation content or any of the actual hateful content online. So much of it was through the lens of cultural products that is not how the average person uses Netflix or YouTube or, you know, Facebook. And so I think there's a bit of a disconnect in terms of where they're coming from that I think they're rethinking how they might try and sell it in the next round. Okay. That's interesting. You've mentioned now privacy and misinformation a couple of times. Why don't we touch quickly on those privacy just has, well, it wasn't a big issue for the government when it was governing, they introduced a bill, but just didn't afford any sort of priority to it. So it didn't go anywhere. Um, and it hasn't figured prominently as part of these discussions over the over this election campaign either. Any thoughts on why privacy doesn't seem to break through, which in a sense, much like our discussion earlier on communications and affordability, one would have thought that this is a this is like a no brainer. People are there is a sense people are concerned about how their information is being used. They don't feel that it's being adequately protected. And it just doesn't seem like it would it's stretching very much for a party to say we take this seriously here's what we're going to do and yet you just don't see a whole lot of that yeah it's really interesting like even from open media's perspective when when the pandemic first hit the only thing people cared about was can i can i get online like can am i going to lose my job can i work from home you know connectivity was really the big thing and there was not as much concern on the other issues that we work on because it was such an urgent crisis and then as the pandemic continued and people realized suddenly that they're going on dates online because they're stuck at home or, you know, all of their conversations are online. Privacy actually kind of spiked back up in people's minds as a concern. And the government's been talking, like the liberal government has been talking about privacy for years. It was a big part of their digital charter, you know, massive map of where they were going to take us, but it was always really vague. And I think what we saw in Bill C-11 was really vague. Uh, and they said, you know, we're committed to doing this, but they, I think, tried to do something for everyone, which landed on nothing for anyone. Uh, you know, it was these huge fines for the big companies made no incentive for them to want to get behind it. Small businesses were really worried about the burden on them. And if they would also be subject to those fines, 
public interest groups could look at that bill a mile away and see the loopholes in it as to where accountability would not actually come through. And, you know, it, it didn't garner public support because there was no one to get behind it. And I think that is one of the big differences between something like Bill C-10 and something like Bill C-11. C-10 had champions and the government didn't manage to find any champions for Bill C-11 because they just did it so halfway in every regard. Um, and we're not really committed to fixing it because there were a lot of people who were willing to sit with them and say like, here's how you make it better. But I don't think they knew who they were trying to please with it. And so I'm not sure they knew who to ask to the table to try and fix it. And I think that was a part of their challenge. I mean, looking at the liberals platform, I, I looked at it when it first came out, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure the word privacy appears two times in the entire document, um, which is astonishing, given that they, you know, both introduced updates to all private sector commercial privacy law and have undertaken a study on the Privacy Act itself for government, you know, data collection and, and privacy protection. So I think, you know, this is a challenge that anyone working on, on internet issues has in general is that privacy tends to come after the fact. People don't know how bad it is until something bad happens and they haven't had a really recent, really bad data breach or really bad story about what's happened. Um, you know, when you look at the Facebook Cambridge Analytica stories, that also was a big driving factor behind the digital charter, behind them needing to update Pivota. And in the last little while, we just haven't had that inflection point and it doesn't feel as urgent as can I pay my cell phone bill or did my content get blocked on Facebook or taken down? Those are really concrete things people can experience in real time, whereas privacy is so often discovered to have been violated later. And the stakeholder groups are much larger. And I think, you know, it's frustrating to see that it hasn't been a big issue, uh, but I'm, I'm not surprised because it's always a push for the public to have to make privacy a priority because it's hard. Uh, it's not something that anyone wants to tackle because it's just imposing extra rules on people who don't really want it. <laughs> if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, no, I think it does. And it's for those, those of us concerned about privacy, it's a source of frustration, but I think you've really depicted much of the, what's, what's at play from a political perspective and why it's, why it's been a challenge to, to get it to take on the same level of importance politically as it does, I think, for many people who, if asked, um, and even in the way they behave, would say that it is a, a major concern. Uh, yeah, why don't we close with this? a huge sense of sure. frustration, for sure. Like, I think not seeing anyone promise anything on it is really a huge flag now because when we actually jump forward to something will happen there will be a breach there will be some sort of issue whether it's you know big tech or the government um, there will be something that happens and when it does you know all of the parties will be quick to promise something but this is their chance to say what they think it should look like now because it's not going to happen fast and we still don't have the protections we need for Canadians. The privacy commissioner still does not have the decision-making authority that it needs. And we're just supposed to accept that the status quo is fine when it's very clearly not. Uh, so I think, you know, it's, it is frustrating. <laughs> and uh, I think it's going to come back to bite them in, in the short to medium to long-term it's, it's going to come back for sure. No, I think that's right. In fact, I'd, I'd go even further and suggest that, you know, there, there is a direct link between our earlier discussion around internet policy and privacy policy, where, you know, if you were serious about dealing with some of the big concerns around big tech, privacy is actually the one of the 
core places to start more than the kind Completely. of content regulation focus that they that they have had it's about uh, abuse or misuse of the data and the competitive effects that that has would be a far better starting point for uh for policy making but it, it, it at least hasn't resonated at least not yet you know why don't we just why don't we close with this you know speaking of issues that that can resonate or not you know in the last election campaign there was a lot of talk around misinformation and electoral interference government came out with uh, with new with legislation that was designed to address that uh, we haven't heard nearly as much about it we certainly hear about misinformation but it tends to be more of course around covid and vaccines than it does around the election issues and we certainly don't hear much if anything about the prospect of, of interference do you, you have thoughts about about why that why that is because that this this issue will i think resurface as well once we get into online harms and there will again be talk around misinformation and yet at the moment when you would think that this would be of its greatest concern political interference it's largely disappeared um, as an issue yeah, it's surprising that it's less of a talking point in this election, uh, particularly given how much misinformation there actually is. But I think, you know, as you said, it's very focused around the pandemic and vaccines and a lot less about politicians and a lot less about government and politics. And I think so much of what this is, this is maybe a cynical view, but, you know, I think we're really more heavily influenced by the US media cycle on these kinds of issues than we would maybe care to admit. And I think so much of the additional hype that was layered into our election last time was really based on fear from the US election that they had just gone through and worrying that that same thing would happen here. And you know the, the data didn't quite play out that it wasn't as bad as people had feared. So I think there's a bit of that. Um, I think you know the, the government itself thinks this is going to be tackled with on, within online harm. So I think that if it comes up, um, you know, the only people that are really at an advantage to try and argue this are the liberals. I think if the conservatives start talking about misinformation, it's like, well, what's your plan to deal with it? And, you know, how are you going to handle it? And it's not as valuable. And, and I think very similar for any other opposition parties, but it's, I think less scary now that there's less misinformation coming from the top, like without this deep seated fear that the president of the United States can get up there and spew misinformation and it spirals. I think people are a little bit back in their own bubbles of, of who they hear things from and what they see and they're, they're seeing what they believe. And it's less scary because there's a lot less talk in the media about it. And therefore I think there's a lot less talk from politicians and and from voters about it as well. I don't think the issue has receded. Um, you know, I think we've seen small different pieces from some of the platforms around how they're trying to handle it. It popped up really briefly when, you know, I think it was Christopher Freeland's uh, tweet got tagged as misinformation by Twitter and, and that kind of back and forth. But we haven't, you know, even with those precautions in place, we haven't seen a ton of really good examples of misinformation from the parties. And I think that's what gets people talking about it is when they're accusing each other of it. Um, and when it comes to COVID, it's, it's a big problem, but the parties are all very aligned. Um, you know, even the conservatives, despite Trudeau's best effort to paint them as anti-vaxxers have clearly come out and said, you need to get your vaccine. It's very important. And they're all very aligned in 
the information they're putting out on the subjects that do have misinformation floating around. So there's not a lot to differentiate them. And I think, you know, it's, there's so many things that I think would be really important election issues, let alone, you know, internet policy election issues, but it's, it's a snap election and it's short and there's a lot of really big issues facing the country and the world right now. You know, we're looking at a global pandemic. BC was on fire for most of the summer. Climate change is a really big issue. We're looking at how are we actually going to get the economy on track? Housing affordability is wildly out of control and a lot of people are really struggling. And so when you're looking at how to fight for your 10 second soundbite, you need to think of something that's going to land really hard and fast with people. And people are really tired of talking about the pandemic. It's, it's exhausting. And I think the misinformation around vaccines for most people is actually really personal. You know, there's someone in your life that you know that has decided that they're not going to get vaccinated and that has a rift in the family or whatever the case might be that, you know, that's, it's, it's an exhausting conversation to have. And I think that is a big part of, I don't know what any of the parties think they're going to win by bringing it up unless they think they have a really concrete solution. And this one's a hard one. It doesn't fit in a, in a quick soundbite the way that they might've thought it did when they just said, you know, big tech bad. And, and I think we've seen them try and tackle some things and now people are going, wait a minute, does that look like censorship? And it, it kind of opens Pandora's box of internet regulation as we've talked about. And I don't know, I, I it's pure speculation, but I think there's not a lot for them to win in bringing it up. It's just really scary and exhausting for people. And it's actually discouraging when they're trying so hard to get their own messages out there and convince people that it's actually an election worth voting in uh, and that they should actually care and that there are real solutions. And I think they're all trying to sell a vision that something good could come. And I'm not sure dragging misinformation into that is very uplifting. If people are listening to this uh, on election day, make sure you vote. And if you're not, hopefully this will provide you with a good sense after the fact about where things may go. So Laura, thanks so much for walking through where things are at and uh, hopefully whatever that next election happens, come back and uh, we can reflect <laughs> again on, on where the parties um, happen to be. Hopefully we've, we've made some progress on some of these I, issues, I hope so. we get to bring some, some new topics into the mix and we made some progress on these ones, but yeah, I'll look forward to it. I hope so too. Well, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. No, thanks for having me. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy Brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.